Let me pray, and then we'll jump into our passage. Um, Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that we can celebrate Easter Sunday together, and we just rejoice in the news that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, it is Easter Sunday, so of course we're talking about the resurrection. And resurrection stories are not just reserved for Christians on Easter. Uh, as a culture, we seem to love resurrection stories. Um, you know, any Game of Thrones fans? Uh, Jon Snow comes back from the dead. Sorry if I ruined it for you, but he comes back from the dead at one point. Uh, Harry Potter, again, sorry if I ruined this for you, but you probably should have read it or seen it by now. But Harry Potter dies and comes back to dead, uh, from the dead in order to defeat Voldemort. Uh, Frozen? Olaf and Anna both die, come back. Um, and uh, I've never seen this show because my parents didn't let me when I was growing up. But on South Park, every episode, Kenny comes back from the dead, which as a kid when that show came out, every kid in my school is always like, who killed Kenny? To me all the time because my name is Ken. So, <laughs> But resurrection stories, they're everywhere in our culture. They're all over the place. And that is, I think, because we love the idea of renewal. We love the idea of redemption, of victory over an impossible enemy. And death, of course, being the endlessly victorious enemy over every single person. And so we write resurrection stories into the stories that we like to read and that we like to watch. Uh, speaking of that, I recently read a book that includes what are effectively... Uh, hundreds of resurrection stories. It's a book called The Midnight Library by Matt Heggs. Anybody read this book? The thing that caused me to buy the book was the subtitle. And the subtitle goes like this. It says, with infinite choices, what is the best way to live? And that drew me in, so I bought the book. And the story of the book goes something like this. There's a young woman named Nora, uh, and her life has not gone quite as she would have hoped. She had the talent to be a, uh, and the hopes of being an Olympic swimmer when she was growing up. She also had the talent and even the opportunity to be in a famous rock band. Um, and the list of her talents and skills goes on and on. She's a very talented young woman in the story. And yet, as you pick up the book, she is depressed and, in her mind, underachieving. And so she ends up, early on in the book, taking her own life. And mysteriously, and this, it's a fictional story, uh, mysteriously she wakes up in a place called the Midnight Library, where the clock always says 12 a.m. And uh, in the library, she meets a librarian. This is the guide of the story. She meets a librarian who is explaining to her where she is, and she says to her, uh, to Nora, between life and death, there is a library. And within that library, the shelves go on forever. Every book provides a chance to try another life you could have lived, to see how things would be different if you had made other choices. Would you have done anything different if you had the chance to undo your regrets? Would you do anything different if you had the chance to undo your regrets? And the librarian explains to her that on the shelves, every book is another life that she could live. And so she can pick any alternate life and live that one. In other words, every single one, a resurrection story. A different life stream had she made a different choice. And this way, she could undo any regretful choices that she made in life, effectively becoming a new person. And so in the book, she picks all sorts of different lives she could have lived. She picks one where she is an Olympic swimmer. She's very successful at that. She picks one off the shelf where she's a rock star. She picks one off the shelf where she started a family and has children. 
One where she became a, a sort of adventurer living in Australia. And the list goes on and on of all the different lives that she chooses. Now, interestingly, again, I'm ruining it for you, but she never seems to be fully satisfied with any of her resurrected lives. And so she goes and lives one and then doesn't like it and then returns to the library only to pick another book off the shelf. And she does it over and over and over again, resurrection after resurrection. Now, all this to say that resurrection stories are everywhere in our culture. And I think what this is telling us is that we have a longing deep within us for our own personal resurrections, for something old in us to die, for our regrets to die, and for us to be renewed into something better with our regrets wiped away, that, that we could be some kind of a new creation. And what Christians believe is that the passage that we're looking at today, it's not about a, a fictional resurrection, but about a factual resurrection. One that all resurrection narratives are actually based on. Because what Christians believe is that there is a resurrection where the old dies and the new is born. Where our regrets can be wiped away and we can live this new kind of life, this new creation. This new life offered by Jesus' resurrection is why Easter is a celebration. It's why we wear bright colors. It's why you might even wear new clothes on Easter. This is, this is a new shirt. Pretty good, I think. Didn't tell my wife I bought a new shirt. She hasn't noticed yet. So. But if you're not a Christian, or maybe you are a Christian, but, but you're in a place of skepticism about your faith, the resurrection might actually come across to you as nonsense. You know, we can't possibly be talking about a real flesh and blood resurrection. You know, maybe you could accept a symbolic resurrection, but not a real one. Well, let me just say, if that's you, you're in really good company. Because every single person in this story in Luke chapter 24 does not believe the resurrection. Not one of them. In fact, I don't know if you noticed it in there, but it actually says in verse 11 that the whole idea seemed like nonsense to Jesus' closest friends and followers, the ones who knew him better than anyone on earth. They heard about the resurrection, and they, they said, that's nonsense. And so if that's where you're at, you're actually in pretty good company. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage in two parts. So part one is non-belief and nonsense, and part two is wonder and belief. So part one, non-belief and nonsense. Now we've seen already that in verse 11... Jesus' closest friends and followers, they, they respond to the news of the resurrection by saying it's nonsense. But the small group of women who report the news, they actually also start out in disbelief. Uh, so they, you know, they might have come to believe it later on, but they didn't start out that way. Because what, what, look at what they're doing on resurrection. What are they doing Resurrection Sunday? Look at it, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now, it's clear from this verse that they were not expecting to find a resurrected Jesus. Instead, they are on their way to embalm a dead body. In other words, they're not in any way expecting to meet a risen, resurrected Jesus. Now, Jesus was laid in a traditional tomb, which would have been uh, a cave carved out of the rock uh, with a round stone rolled in front of it to seal it up. And his body would have been wrapped up in linen strips and 
laid on a shelf carved out of the rock. This is what they're expecting to see when they get there. But when they arrive, when the women arrive, uh, verse 2, the stone is rolled away. And verse 3, there was no body. And then notice verse 4. It starts out saying this. So they're standing there, they're looking at this. And then it says, while they were wondering about this. This is one of the biggest understatements in the Bible. (laughs) And the, the word there actually for wondering in the ancient Greek is a word that means to doubt or to hesitate or to be perplexed. And that word actually emphasizes their non-belief even further. Because if they thought a resurrection was even a possibility, that's not the word that Luke would have used. He wouldn't have used that word to talk about wondering. This this is a word of doubt, of confusion, of perplexity. Now the text goes on to say the women meet two angels and that changes their perspective from disbelievers of the resurrection to believers. And we'll come back to that near the end. But once they believe, they go and find the 11 disciples to tell them about the resurrection. And that's where we get this verse 11 that we've been talking about. Verse 11, the women come, they tell them about the resurrection, and it says, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. So here we have even more disbelief, and that disbelief is emphasized by saying the disciples themselves thought it was nonsense. Now that word, by the way, for nonsense in the original language is actually a medical term. Uh, Luke, the person who wrote the story, was a doctor, so he was prone to using medical terms. And so this was a medical term in the ancient world for delirium. They're saying, you're delirious. Now, why did they think it was nonsense? Why did no one, not the women, not the disciples, why did no one believe the resurrection? Well, there's actually at least two reasons. Number one has to do with decay. Uh, They understood the natural laws of decay. Everything decays. Every living thing uh, decays. And the ancients knew this as well, if not better, than we do. You know, we have all kinds of ways of preserving things today that the ancients would have never even dreamed of. So if anyone understood the natural law of entropy or of deterioration, it was the ancients. They, They understood this law. My wife recently sent me a clip of a new Jerry Seinfeld bit about decay. So I'll do my best to represent that for you. Don't tell Jerry Seinfeld. But he starts out and he says, you know, I'll throw anything out at any time. Where's the wedding album? I don't know. Thought you were done with it. And he goes on to make the point that all things on earth only exist in different stages of becoming garbage. And so he says, your home is nothing more than a garbage processing center where you buy new things, bring them into your house, and slowly turn them into garbage over time. Uh, he, he says that objects always start at the highest level, and so they are visible, they're out for everyone to see, uh, but from there it moves down to a closet or a cupboard or a drawer, and that's so that you know, we don't all, always have to look at the mistakes that we've made. And then finally he says, all garbage ends up in the garage, which is the longest phase of the garbage processing center. And he makes the point that typically nothing ever makes it out of the garage. And once in the garage, it never, ever makes its way back into the house. Uh, And so this is the process of decay, otherwise known as the law of entropy, as described by Jerry Seinfeld. And it's pretty much spot on. Now, I will say there's a joke that he missed. So here's my take on it. 
Uh, I can't believe he missed this, um, but I was thinking about it. And, uh, you know, if you just add the letter B to the middle of the word garage, you get garbage. So there you go. Um, <clears throat> this is why Seinfeld is a professional comedian and I do what I do, okay? I'll be at the yuck yuck later with that joke. Well, clearly the women in our passage, they, they understood this natural law, that everything decays, especially once it's put in a grave. This is why they're going to the tomb. The ancient Jewish burial custom provided for the decomposition of the body. And so they would wrap it in linen. They would anoint it with sweet-smelling oils and spices to cover up the horrible smell as it decomposed. And then once the flesh decomposed entirely, they would take the bones and put them in what's called a bone box. And this is clearly what the women are expecting to take part in with Jesus' body. They did not expect a resurrection. Instead, they're expecting decay. So that's one of the reasons why nobody expected it. But secondly, no one in the ancient world really wanted a resurrection. Resurrection stories like this were not popular in the first century. Certainly not amongst the Jews like Jesus and his followers. Now, most Jews did believe in a resurrection, um, but they looked forward to a future resurrection when everybody would be resurrected at the same time. Uh, so they believed and looked forward to that future one. So the idea that one person would be raised from the dead in the middle of time is actually somewhat of, of an offensive idea. And so someone had said to a first century Jew, you know, hey, so-and-so uh, has been resurrected from the dead. Their response would be, okay, you're nuts, because at the end of time is when resurrection is happening. And so are you saying that all justice has been done? Are you saying that there's no more sickness or death or crying or pain? Are you saying that's all been done away with? That's impossible. And so to the Jews, a resurrection of one person in the middle of time was an impossibility. But also, resurrections were not po possible or even desired by the Greek and Roman thinkers. And so the ancient Greco-Roman worldview held that the body, your physical body, was weak, was corrupt, it was actually defiling. Your body is what made you do all the things you didn't want to do, in their view. Uh, so it was always falling apart. And so for them, for the Greco-Roman thinkers, salvation was actually being liberated, like your soul being liberated from your body. That's what they were aiming at. And so in this worldview, resurrection was not only impossible, but it was completely undesirable. And so they would say no soul, having gotten free from its body, would ever want to get back into its body. And so non-belief in the resurrection was front and center on that first Easter morning. His closest friends and followers, they were the first skeptics. They were the first non-believers. And yet, something changed. They went from disbelief and nonsense to wonder and belief. And that leads us to part two, wonder and belief. And so this transformation in these very first skeptics was so radical that along with the resurrection came an entirely new worldview that exploded across the ancient world and is still making its impact today even as we sit here in this church that is named for the one who was raised from the dead. And so these original skeptics becoming believers, not only were their own lives transformed, but these new believers actually shaped the entire world as we know it today. And so how is it they came to this wonder and this belief? Well, look first at Peter at the end of the passage, because Luke, the author, he uses the word wonder. Again, he uses the word wonder to describe Peter's state of mind. Now remember, he's already used, it, used that word wonder to describe the women back in verse 4, but look at verse 12. 
Peter, however, so he, he's heard the news. Verse 12, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, and here's the word, wondering to himself what had happened. And so Peter hears the news of this apparent resurrection from the woman who went to the tomb. And verse 11, he thinks, is nonsense. They're delirious. But then in verse 12, he wonders. And very importantly, the word in the original language there for wondering, it's not the same word used of the woman at the tomb. It's a totally different word. So they're wondering, remember, the, the woman's wondering was wondering of doubt, of hesitation, of perplexity. But the author uses a different word here, which means to admire. To admire with great admiration. It's a word that means to revere. It's a word that means to marvel. But Peter's wondering when he arrives at the tomb was positive in contrast to the negative wondering of the women when they had arrived at the tomb. Now, remember, the women, they, they arrive at the tomb with presuppositions. The presupposition that when a person dies, they are dead. And that's final. That's their presupposition. I think that's a pretty good presupposition. So when they arrive and see the tomb empty, they're filled with doubt and hesitation and perplexity because what they're seeing goes against their presupposition. But Peter also had presuppositions. And his presupposition are the same as the woman's presuppositions. His presupposition is that when a person dies, they are dead. That's final. And that's very obvious in verse 11 when it says, he did not believe the woman because his words seemed, her, their words seemed to him like nonsense. And yet, when Peter arrives at the empty tomb and he sees there's no body there, he leaves with a different kind of wonder. He leaves with an admiration. He leaves with reverence. Another word for that is worship. He leaves with worship. So what's different? What's different for Peter? Well, the difference is Peter allows the evidence to speak for itself. He sees with his own eyes the empty tomb with the strips of linen lying there and no body in the tomb. And so Peter allows the evidence to speak for itself, and he does not allow, get this, he does not allow his own presuppositions to control him. And so remember, if you're a person who says the resurrection is impossible to believe, you're in really good company. You're in the company of the Apostle Peter, who would go on to be the de facto leader of the early church. And Peter and the woman, they felt the exact same way as you might feel. They found the resurrection as inconceivable as you might find it. And so the only way that one embraced the resurrection back then is the same as how we'd have to, to embrace it today. It's by letting the evidence challenge and change our worldview, change our presuppositions of what is possible. And you might look at that and say, somebody raised from the dead, that, that's never happened before. Everything has never happened before until it happens. These early skeptics had just as much trouble with the claims of the resurrection as you and I, and yet they let the evidence speak for itself. And instead of doubt, instead of perplexity, 
Peter walked away with wonder and belief. It was the same with the women. Instead of the doubt with which they began, they ran to tell others of their newfound belief. And this is what I love about Christianity. This is what I love about Jesus Christ. Despite not even one of his closest followers, not even one of his closest friends, not one of them believed his resurrection. They rejected the idea. All of them rejected the idea of a resurrection. But in spite of that, he embraces each and every one of them. If you read on in Luke's gospel, if you read in Matthew, if you read in Mark, if you read in John, Jesus goes on to have an encounter with every single one of these early skeptics. Not one of them deserved to be amongst the first to see Jesus risen from the dead because not one of them believed it or expected it even though he had told them three times it was going to happen. And yet those are the very men and women that he went to first. And that in and of itself is a picture of the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel is simply this, that in one way or another, every single one of us, like the woman who went to the tomb, like the disciples, including Peter, like Thomas, if you know that story, Doubting Thomas, like all of them, each one of us has turned away from God and rejected him in one way or another. We've rejected him intellectually, relationally, practically, morally. And yet God himself came in the person of Jesus Christ to die precisely for those who have rejected him, who have denied him. And that's what happened on Good Friday, that Jesus Christ was crucified. And in his crucifixion, he bore the sins of the world. In other words, he was punished in our place. He received what we deserve. And in return to those who believe in him, who put their faith in Christ, that he is the son of God who takes away the sins of the world. In return, he gives us what he deserves, not the wrath of God, but the love of God. He gives us a clean slate, our sins forgiven, our eternity sealed. That is the Christian gospel. And even in the resurrection, Jesus Christ proclaims that truth yet again by graciously, lovingly, mercifully revealing himself to men and women who rejected him. Back to that novel that we started with, The Midnight Library. Uh, near the start of the book, it's one of the early chapters before any of the resurrection stories have happened. The librarian of this fictional library hands the main character a book called The Book of Regrets. It's a book that records all the thoughts, words, deeds, and decisions that Nora made in her life that she regrets, that she wishes she could do over again. And listen to this description of the feeling she has as she's holding and reading this book that has recorded every regret every sin, every wrong act she's ever done. Here's the description. The power of all the regrets simultaneously emanating from the book was becoming agony. The weight of guilt and remorse and sorrow too strong. She leaned back on her elbows, dropped the heavy book, and squeezed her eyes shut. She could hardly breathe as if invisible hands were around her neck. Make it stop, she says. Close it now, instructed the librarian. Close the book, not just your eyes. Close it, 
You have to do it yourself. So Nora, feeling like she was about to pass out, sat back up and placed her hand under the front cover. It felt even heavier now, but she managed to close the book and gasped in relief. Now what that is describing so potently is the weight that each of us would feel if handed a book of our regrets, a book of our sins. The power of all our regrets simultaneously emanating from the book becoming agony. The weight of guilt and remorse and sorrow for our sin. We would beg for it to stop. Only unlike the advice of the librarian... The librarian said, you do it. You have to close it yourself. You make it happen. The offer of the Christian gospel is to have that book closed for you. Not only closed, but wiped clean. All of your sin taken away. This is the Christian gospel. That on the cross, Jesus Christ took the book, slammed it shut, and in the resurrection, took the book away forever. And so you see, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, it was like the burden of each and every person's book of regret was placed on his back. And in his self-denying, sacrificial death on the cross, he paid for all of your regrets. And in exchange, he gives you resurrection. Not only the forgiveness of sins, but liberation from death. He actually gives you, go back to the Midnight Library, he gives you the one book to pull off the shelf that is a life that is a new creation. And there is, of course, an ultimate liberation from death in that every single Christian will one day be resurrected and spend eternity with God. But you and I get to taste something of that liberation now. Something of that freedom from death, that liberation from decay. One way the Bible puts the resurrection life is like this, and this is in a book called 2 Corinthians, and the author is talking about the resurrection, and he says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. This is the hope of a Christian. That when a person places their faith in Christ, they become a new creation. They become a resurrection story. And in this new creation, this resurrection life, it opens the door for a resurrection of all sorts of things. It opens the door for a resurrection of a marriage. It opens the door for a resurrection of hope instead of anxiety. It opens the door for a resurrection of community instead of isolation and loneliness. And the way to get that life today, the way to become a Christian is simply this. To believe in your heart and to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Son of God crucified, buried, and risen. And so what we're going to do as I close is we're going to say out loud together what Christians have believed since the resurrection of Jesus. And so maybe for you, maybe this is the the first time that you're believing that in your heart and saying it with your mouth. Or maybe you're a person who's sort of walked away from God and wanted to come back to him. If you want to have the weight of your book of regrets removed by believing Christ today and to begin to live that resurrected life, let's say the Apostles' Creed 
together, believing it in your heart and confessing it with your mouth. Uh, it's in your service order, so it's that extra piece of paper in there. Let's read this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.